Good morning. Great to see everybody here. Um, our scripture passages this morning are uh, two scripture passages from Matthew. The first is from Matthew 22, 36 through 40. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? Jesus replied, Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and prophets hang on these two commandments. And our second reading is from Matthew 5, verses 43 through 48. You have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. He causes his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your own people, what are you doing more than others? Do not even pagans do that? Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. The Gospel of the Lord. You know, when I'm biking or walking around the back of the neighborhood near the church here, I'm always intrigued by the yard signs that people have in front of their houses. And as the school year ends, you often see the, you know, celebrating high school graduates like we did for Ren this morning. And uh, we see the, you know, Black Lives Matter signs, or we'll see the political uh, candidate signs during election seasons. And then there's this one sign that, I've, that kind of caught my attention. Now, I agree with all of these statements, but there's one phrase that's a little bit problematic for me, uh, because it's not clear. It's the phrase, love is love. You know, when you read a phrase like this, of course, love is love. But using a word to define itself is, at best, uh, inarticulate, or at worst, quite snide. It's inarticulate in the sense that you couldn't find a better word to define the word you want to use, or it's snide in the sense that you expect people to know exactly what you are talking about, and it carries a subtext in both of those instances. It, there's a tone that says uh, that if you don't, if people don't agree with what you're thinking, then perhaps it's not truly loving. Both statements, both senses are not as loving as the statement would appear. But here's the thing, Christians can do the same thing. We might respond to a situation saying, well, I believe in a God of love. And when we say words, phrases like that, we're assuming that the hearer has exact same understanding of God's love as we do. And there's a subtext in that statement as well, saying, I think my understanding of God and God's love might be superior to what I think your idea of love might be. And this too is not particularly loving. So here we see the challenges of talking about God and what God's love is like. Through this series, we've been coming back to the great commandment, which Alice just read for us, love God and love your neighbor as yourself. And in, in this case, Jesus is calling his followers to uh, live this out. But how do we live this out with integrity and faithfully? You know, we're often wondering about how, uh, what, what these words mean and what it looks like to extend God's love in this way. So today I want to explore what it looks like for, of this, what kind of love that Jesus is talking about, the nature of this love. And later on, we're going to look at 
the five ways that God expresses love towards the world that we find in Scripture. Canadian theologian D.A. Carson uh, published a book after the events of 9-11 entitled Love in Hard Places. And it's been a helpful resource for me. And if you want to explore what Scripture has to say about loving and difficult circumstances, take a look at this book. Now, when we come to the text, Jesus has this conversation with, in Matthew 22 about uh, and, and when he's having that conversation, it's the current church leaders then who are trying to entrap him in his words. They're trying to get him to incriminate himself as an illegitimate rabbi, hoping to catch him making an assertion that would fall outside of the accepted theological tradition of the Jewish faith. And so, in the passage just before what Alice read for us, it's the Sadducees, one group of leader have, leaders, have given it a shot, but they failed asking him about the resurrection. And here, it's the, another group called the Pharisees who sends their lawyer to ask Jesus a question, saying, Teacher, what's the greatest commandment? And he answers, as we heard. And when Jesus answers the Pharisees' question about the great commandment, he brings together two loves that are expressed in the Torah. But these two commands were not uh, given side by side. They actually come from two different passages in the Old Testament. And what Jesus is doing here, he's distilling all of the Old Testament into these two commands. He's making a commentary on what the law is. The first and greatest commandment comes from, uh, of love, Lord your God, with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, comes from Deuteronomy 6. And the second one comes from Leviticus 19. So let's take a look at Jesus' source material to get a better understanding. You know, when we look at Jesus' source material, we discover that the idea of a loving God is neither an amorphous idea of love, nor is it an amorphous idea of God. In Deuteronomy, loving God with our whole being is set in the context of knowing God's word and of obeying it and passing it on to other generations after. And this, so this suggests that loving God cannot be divorced from a reverence for God's commands as they are given to us. And specifically for Moses and the people of God, loving God is bound up with reading and, and cherishing and meditating and delighting and obeying God's words found in Scripture. It's interesting. God doesn't say to us, these podcasts I give you today are to be written on your heart. Or these preachers' words are to be on your hearts. Or these authors' quotes are to be on your social media feeds. Of course, you can use those things, and we can do those things, that we can appreciate and learn from all these sources. But the point is, in light of Scripture, is do they lead you to delight in and meditate on God's Word? Do they lead you to a place of worship and gratitude for God's Word, where you say, wow, God, I, I never saw that in your Word before. That's in there? Thank you, God. That's our, what we hope to do when we come to scripture. That's a significant part of what it means to love God and for God's word to be written on our hearts. So consider this. The longest, do you know where the longest chapter in the Bible is? If you're here, you can shout it out. It comes from the longest uh, book in the Bible, which is the book of Psalms. And if you actually do this and you count the number, I just did this this week. I went to the last page of Revelations and I divided that page number in half. You know that very center of the Bible is actually Psalm 119. And what is Psalm 119? 
Psalm 119 is a meditation on the world-changing, people-transforming act of God's word. Loving God involves loving God's word and obeying God's word. But what does that look like? You know, this week there was a viral audition by a singer named Songbird. You may have seen it on the reality TV show named America's Got Talent. And what comes through in her audition beyond this amazing original song that she performed is the way she conveys her strength and, uh, and her faith. Songbird is about 30 years old and she's night, right? No, it's, is it Nightbird? Oh, okay. So, okay. Thank you for the correction. Nightbird with an E at the end. If in case you're listening, you can search it yourself. Um, so, so, uh, Nightbird. Wow. Okay. Nightbird <laughs> is a three time, uh, she's 30 years old and she's a three time cancer survivor already. And she actually performed her audition with cancer still in her lungs, in her spine, and in her liver. And we're, we find out later that she had, her husband had recently left her. And so she has experienced an incredible amount of pain in, in such a short life. Yet, she carries herself with this amazing glow of, of strength and grace. And as the successful judges stand before her and empathize her as she shares these uh, these, her pains, she says something very powerful. She says, it's important for me to know that uh, I'm much more than the bad things that happened to me. And I was intrigued when she made a statement like that. And so I searched her up and, and found her blog and, and she blogs about her painful journey. And she writes as the following. Well, she, she's asking, where's mercy here, God? That's the same question I'm asking again and again. There's mercy here somewhere, but what is it? What is it? What is it? I see mercy in the dusty sunlight that outlines the trees, in my mother's crooked hands, in the blanket my friend left for me, in the harmony of the wind chimes. It's not the mercy I asked for, but it is, the mer it is mercy nonetheless. And I learn a new prayer. Thank you. It's a prayer I don't mean yet, but will repeat until I do. You know, Songbird conveys, you know, where the heck is your mercy, oh God, in this mess of my life? But she also has come to know the power of praying God's word because God's word is written on her heart in the form of thank yous that she still doesn't quite mean yet, but she will repeat until it does. And though she never mentions God or her faith on the stage of America's Got Talent, her love for God shines brightly through her. And perhaps that is the kind of love that, uh, that a loving God, uh, that th the kind of love that Jesus had in mind for his followers in what it meant to love God and to love God's word when he said this to the Pharisees. Loving God does involve trusting and loving God's word, even when it doesn't quite match our lived experience. We have hope that God does know and that God does love more than we can ever know. And there's something beautiful and wonderfully attractive in that kind of love that, that isn't frag, like fragile eggshells under your feet or like a condescending weight over your head. Love simply holds us where we are at, spoken through the words of God and scripture. And I wonder if what our lives might look like if we held God's word in the same way. That's loving God. 
Now on to love of neighbor. Now here we switch to Jesus' source material in Leviticus 19. And it, I think it's coming up on the screen here. And as you read this chapter, you find out that this whole chapter is devoted to a list of commands regarding social relationships. Honoring parents and elders, uh, leaving gleanings for the poor at harvest time, not stealing or lying or perverting justice in ways that advantage the poor or the rich, and not taking advantage of people with disabilities. And notably, if you take a look at the beginning of this chapter, what the beginning command that sets all these relational commands is, be holy, for I, the Lord, your God, am holy. And here we're reminded of the uh, significance of John Wesley's quote that we brought up last week. Holiness, as he said, is love of God and love of neighbor. Holiness is about wholeness of self and wholeness in relationship with God that spills over into wholeness, more wholeness in all of our relationships. Loving your neighbor as yourself, in a sense, can be an incredibly holy act. And especially when we're talking about a particular kind of neighbor. What am I talking about? I think it's all easy for us to love our neighbors or to care for our neighbors that we get along with, right? And being generous towards neighbors who you may not know well, but when they're in need, that's an easy way to love them. But what about the neighbors that you don't particularly get along with? What about those neighbors that have those kinds of yard signs in front of their yard uh, house and they would make those kinds of social media posts that cause you to roll your eyes? What about those neighbors who make a big fuss to your HOA? What about the neighbors who don't pick up after their dogs on your lawn? What about the awkward uncle or the drama queen aunt at family reunions? What about the colleagues who take credit for your work? What about fellow siblings in Christ who might see the LGBTQ inclusion question quite differently from you? What does loving those kind of neighbors look like? In all of these situations, the call to love our neighbors is, uh, is kind of like this, where the rubber, uh, rubber tire of our love meets the bumpy road of life. Jesus calls us to love all of these kinds of neighbors with a radical love, and even a more radical love as we find in Matthew chapter 5 that Alice read for us. There, Jesus commands us to love even our enemies. But here's the thing, loving our neighbors and particularly loving our enemies and opponents is not just about being nice. On one hand, being nice is about being loving at a very elemental level where we're polite and kind towards them. But there's also another level of being nice, which is actually not that nice and not that loving. On one hand, being nice has this positive connotations of being polite and kind. But on the other hand, being nice is really about loving yourself. Being nice is about not wanting to inconvenience yourself and having a difficult conversation. We're often nice when we don't want to invest any more time into a relationship. So we just smile and we say a few platitudes. We talk about the weather, talk about what we did in COVID, talk about our vacation plans for the summer, and then we move on without going any deeper. Because loving neighbors and even loving enemies, though, involves some difficult 
conversations. You know, when we go, go to uh, uh, Proverbs, uh, a text like Proverbs, we're that's coming up on the screen here, it says, better is an open rebuke than hidden love. Wounds from a friend can be trusted, but an enemy multiplies kisses. You know, being nice can be a hidden love and multiplying kisses. It's saying one thing, but doing or thinking another. Real love gets to difficult matters. Real love invests time into a relationship. Loving your neighbor isn't just about being nice, but loving your neighbor is also not just being tolerant, which is another very popular term that we talk about. Evelyn Beatrice Hall uh, is best known for her biography about the French writer Voltaire. And she illustrated Voltaire's beliefs in this oft-quoted statement that's up on the screen. I disapprove of what you say, but I will defend to the death your right to say it. The statement describes how tolerance has historically been directed towards people, not their ideas. Tolerant, we tolerate people. The implicit in the idea of tolerance is the fact that a tolerant person disagrees with another person's idea. You don't have to be tolerant of someone who already agrees with you, right? But now, tolerance has shifted from be, being tolerant of people to being tolerating of all ideas themselves in the name of love. In our current postmodern culture, it seems anathema to say that another set of ideas or positions or of opinions are wrong or untrue or evil. But here's the thing. If an idea is really wrong or bad, what is there to tolerate? And if all ideas are equally good and valid, then what is there to tolerate? This kind of Postmodern tolerance is often least tolerant towards others who do not share your same set of ideas and ideals. This intolerance is often expressed toward people whose views you dislike, rather than merely expressing against the views themselves. This particular view of tolerance, postmodern tolerance, is a violation of God, the honoring of fellow image bearers of God. We have elevated our, our ideas and our ideology and our positions above the honoring of a fellow human being, of a fellow image bearer of God. And that's not loving your neighbor. That's love of self. That's love of your ideas at the expense of your neighbor. We see that in the news and the media all the time, unfortunately. So here's a check that I ask for myself. When I encounter a person with whom I probably disagree, what are, my, what are my sentiments towards them? Is it care and curiosity? Or is it thumbing my nose down towards them because of their apparent ignorance? Because you know what that is? That's pride. Or am I tempted to uh, say to others, hey, did you hear what so-and-so said about this? Can you believe it? You know what that is? That's gossip and slander. And, and sometimes in the Christian world, we say, hey, we should pray for this person. You know what they think? That's just kind of sanctified gossip. We might think it's a little more well-intentioned when we say, well, I should send him a link to this podcast, author, scripture, book. Maybe that, then they'll come to see the truth. But you know what that is? That's unsolicited advice that can come across as patronizing and presumptuous. 
no matter what your intentions might be. But all of these are far or can be far from loving. Love says, wow, I, I really don't get what they believe and why they believe it, but I, I really want to understand. I want to understand what they've experienced or find out what I don't know here for myself. And maybe there's something that I can learn from my neighbor whom I want to love and care for and seek to understand. That's love of neighbor. And this kind of love takes time and it takes sacrifice. And in scripture, we see this kind of sacrificial, other-centered love in the character of God revealed in the person and work of Jesus. Love God, love neighbor, even your enemies, even your opponents. Loving your, God, your neighbor is not just being nice, it's not just being tolerant. So what does loving God like the way God loves us look like? One of us, you know, we might say, well, I, I believe in a God of love. I think we have a particular view of love and a particular view of God's love in mind. But how does our particular view of God's love line up with these five primary ways that scripture describes God's love to us? Now, as you hear this, I, I, you, I don't want you to think that there are five different kinds of love that are compartmentalized for different ex situations. And they're neither, I'm not going to talk about the four Greek words for God's love, even though those are true as well. Rather, what we want to see here is the five different ways that God expresses love that we must acknowledge and are invited to imitate in the call to love God and to love our neighbors. This, the first love that we're going to talk about is the love of the Father and of the Son, between the love of the Father, the, the love of the Father for the Son and the love of the Son for the Father, and also of the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit. This is the love of, within the Trinity, within the three persons of the Trinity. It's not the love of redemption. It's neither the Father, nor the Son, nor the Spirit need to be redeemed. And neither is it love that's poured out despite the imperfections of the loved one. Because they're all God. Three persons are all God. They are perfect. This is the perfect and pure love that we observe, but we can never fully imitate in this life until we see are in God's presence. That's the first kind of love, the love between the, the three persons of the Trinity. Then there's a second kind of love, which is God's providential love over the entire universe. Here we see it in the creation. God created everything and he called it very good. And even though sin entered the world, and despite creation being disordered and broken, Jesus still teaches us that God, in the Matthew chapter 5 verse that Alice read, causes his son to rise on the evil and the good, and sends rain on both the just and the unjust, on the righteous and the unrighteous. This is the caring love of God that is indiscriminate. This is unconditional. And this is the kind of caring love that informs our love of our enemies that Jesus talks about in Matthew 5. That's why he says, if you, get, if you love those who love you, what reward will you get? In other words, loving, the call to love our enemies is grounded in this fact that God providentially loves, providentially cares for both the just, the unjust. And the beneficiaries of God's providential love don't have to recognize the source of this love. They don't have to respond to this love, yet they benefit freely from God's love. God does love all, particularly in this way. Third, we get to God's yearning, inviting, seeking, saving love. 
And this is the love that we see described in John 3.16. You know, for God loves the whole world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him might have uh, eternal life, shall not perish but have eternal life. This is the kind of love that says, is there, there's a purpose to this love, which is that people would experience life with God. This is the same God who cries out in Ezekiel, saying, I don't take pleasure in the, uh, in the death of the wicked, but rather that they turn from their ways and live. Turn from your evil ways. Why will you die, O house of Israel? Even God's special people, Israel, are going to die because of their failure to repent and believe in God. And this kind of love is different from these, the love of the Father uh, and the Son and the Spirit. And it's also different from the God's providential love for all. It is God's yearning love that can either be rejected by unbelief or embraced through belief and trust in God. And there's the fourth uh, expression of God's love, which is God's choosing love. It's his selective love. He's the God who chooses Israel, not because Israel is smarter or stronger or better or more moral than other people groups, but simply because God loves her. We see that come up in the, the verses that are listed there. This, now, this shouldn't be confused with passages that speak of God's providential love for all, because everyone is loved by God in that sense, in God's care for all of creation. But here, the entire point is that God's love is making a distinction through God's divine election. We see God make distinctions in, in love when, in, when the prophet Malachi talks about Jacob and Esau. And there God says, I have loved Jacob, but I hate Esau. This is God talking. And the Apostle Paul commentates on this passage in Romans 9. He says that before Jacob or Esau were ever born, or before they had done anything good or bad, God already had it in mind to love one and to hate the other. Why? In order to accomplish God's purposes in history. God's selective love is different from God's yearning and inviting love, which is different from God's providential caring love overall without distinction. So we've got four, and the last one is God's conditional love. God's love has been unconditional, but we also see that God's love is conditional. In Scripture, there are numerous passages that point to how God's love is conditional based on faithful obedience to God. In Exodus, God promises to show love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. And you might say, well, Andrew, that's Old Testament. In the New Testament, Jesus came and God loves all, doesn't he? But we find that Jesus himself says to his followers in, Matthew, in John chapter 15, if you obey my commandments, you will remain in my love just as I have obeyed my father, father's commandments and remain in his love. And Jude warns his readers, keep yourselves in God's love. You know, texts like these make it unambiguous that it is very possible to not remain in God's love through our disobedience and lack of trust in God. So, in this very quick overview, God's love is universal, is unconditional in his providential care for the just and the unjust, for the faithful and the faithless, for the, uh, those in the church and those out of the church. God's love is unconditional in that it is offered universally for the redemption for all who are destined for death apart from God.
But at the same time, God's love is limited in a sense that some have been called to benefit fully from God's love. And that's a whole other conversation. (laughs) And it also seems quite clear that God's love is conditional for people based on their trust and their obedience to God's word. So enjoying the fullness of God's love is somewhat dependent on our response to God. You know, I've shared earlier about this image of the thermometer. I think it's going to come up on the screen. That helps us imagine what God's love is like. In a thermometer, there is nowhere on the scale that the red line cannot go. Even all the way down to absolute zero on the Kelvin degree scale. But above freezing, 32 degrees Fahrenheit or zero degrees Celsius, is where the temperature begins warming water above freezing. The temperature melts solid ice to liquid water. God's love is like that red fluid. It can be present anywhere on that scale. In that sense, God's love is unconditional. But above freezing is is like the selective and conditional love of God, where God's people begin to enjoy the fullness of God's love. Seeing how God loves us unconditionally and conditionally helps us discern how we can love others well. With God's help, we can offer radical and generous and unconditional love and care for those especially who have been oppressed, those who have been, are needy or who are marginalized. We can offer it unconditionally to the just, those who deserve it, and to the unjust, those who don't really deserve it. To those who are in the church, to those who are outside of the church. There is no one outside the possibility of this kind of love that we can offer. We are to offer unconditional love to our neighbors, to our enemies, and to our opponents by seeking to understand them, by caring for them, by honoring them as fellow image bearers of God. And this kind of love takes time and sacrifice. Love is not just being nice and being tolerant of people. And once people see that they are loved unconditionally, perhaps we will have the opportunity to have difficult conversations with them and to wrestle together with what God's word says about what it means to please God with all of the complexities and all the nuances of our human experience. You know, over these past few months, I met Bill White, who uh, is a pastor, who pastors a church in Long Beach, California, that he would neither characterize as affirming or traditional in the, that kind of, uh, um, what do you call it, category. And he's given me permission to share his thoughts about journeying with his two children who have come out in recent years. His parents, his children traveled to D.C. this weekend to participate in the Pride Parade in acknowledgement of Pride Month. And he says this to his children. There is pride that is the opposite of humility, vanity and self-idolatry, and that is a vice. But then there is pride that is the opposite of shame, magnanimity, or greatness of soul, and that is a great virtue. You, to his children, embody that freedom from shame, that capacity for good, that wholeness within. When I hear words like this from, this from Pastor Bill, I see the kind of love that God calls us to demonstrate in our world. Love that is boundless in possibility, but it's a love that is bounded by the reality of God and God's word. And may we as a community love God wholeheartedly and love others generously to the glory of God 
who loved us so radically first in Jesus. It's only in the living God of Scripture that we can say love is love. It's only in the living God of Scripture that we can say love is true and truly love. May we do so with God's help. Amen.